Hello, everybody. Welcome to Hold the Line. My name's Joe, and I'm a British force-free gun dog trainer. You can check out my online courses at forcefreegundog.com. The newest course is called Training the T Drill. You can also pick up a copy of my book called Force Free Gun Dog Training: The Fundamentals for Success, which is available on Amazon's everywhere around the world. There's also an accompanying workbook to record your training sessions in. I'm currently working on a sequel to Force Free Gun Dog Training. And I hope it's going to be out maybe in about six months. We'll see. That's all for now. Let's get on with the show. Train your gun dog without force or fear. Motivate and educate. Hold the line is here. Invention, repetition, generalization, motivation. Hold the line. Oh, yeah. Welcome back to Hold the Line. So, I've got some exciting news this week, which is that. The workbook, which accompanies my book, Force Free Gun Dog Training, The Fundamentals for Success, is now available. So the workbook is this kind of orange colored book, which is about 200 pages long. Um, and it's designed to accompany the Force Free Gun Dog Training book. So basically, there are lots of different sections in the book for you to work through. So I'll just kind of run through it so that you get a sense of what it's about. So there's the basics section, which is going to run you through all the basic exercises. And you've got then these little tick boxes that you can check off when you have completed each particular exercise. You then have these little icons, which my husband Adam has made, which are quite cute, actually. Um, And they are icons for the home, the yard, the street and the field. So the idea is that as you train each exercise, you tick it off when you've trained it in the relevant environment. So if you have trained, for example, um, I don't know, your release word sit, stay exercise and you've trained that in the home, you would tick that off. And then when you trained it in the yard, you would tick that off and so on until you've kind of worked through and ticked off all little icons. And so the idea is that you progress through all the different exercises that we covered in the book and you tick them off as you cover them. Now, there are also some sort of planner type sections to the book. Um, There's a section called locations. And the purpose of that is to enable you to keep a record of valuable training locations. This stems from my experience um, of kind of finding a really great training spot and thinking, oh, I must remember this spot for whatever purpose you know maybe it's got some really great water that I can return and use and then I just completely forget about it and many months later when I'm thinking oh where was that place again I just can't remember it and so I thought wouldn't it be great if you had a sort of place where you could keep a record of these um, locations you don't want to forget about Um, so that's what this is so basically you can just jot down the location what it's suitable for what you want to train there um, what the sort of terrain is like is it flat is it hilly is it grassy is there water there what sort of water what kind of entry to the water and so on and so forth so that's a little location section there's a little goal section where you get to sort of set your goals your long-term goals your mid-term goals your short-term goals you kind of jot those down so you've got something to kind of work through 
There's an events section where you can reflect on your dog's performance at events. So, for example, um, an event can be it can be a competition or an assessment, but it can also just be a shoot day or like a day when your dog is out um, and you're kind of looking at how their training is going. So you might want to make notes on the dog's performance, um, on the next steps that you want to take with the dog, on things kind of that you need to focus on and work on with that particular dog. So there's a little section there with some um, bits and pieces to fill in there. Um, there's a section called months and that is kind of a, like a planner really again you can add in your you know what your tasks are for that month your priorities your events um, and then you can either we've kind of used the bullet journal method when it comes to the little icons so you can either you know put a cross if you finished it you can migrate it to the next month um, you can mark it as a priority i hope you're getting a sense of what this workbook's about as i talk about it here there's a section on weeks, um, and that is a more detailed section for you to break down your training over the weeks. So you can plan your training for that week ahead and think about what you've got in the diary and how you're going to fit the training around your diary that week. There's lots of uh, pages for that, and there's pages for daily training. So if the weekly training isn't giving you enough space to be able to plot out each training session, then the daily se- sections give you even more space to be able to do that. So it's a super duper useful little book it's going to help you um, stay on track and keep structured with your training so that you don't end up just I think you know as I explained in the introduction to the book it came about because you know I would find that if I didn't plan a training session particularly when I was starting out I would end up just standing in the rain usually um, by the car with my leash in my hand thinking right well I've no idea what I'm going to do today I just want to get home and get on with what I've got to do at home and you know, just let's just get this over and done with. And I would just get the dog out of the car and it would be a really unsatisfying session where we just didn't really make much progress. And the dog would mainly just run around. I would just be like, oh, just exercise yourself. Just, you know, run around, get some, get rid of your yayas so we can go home and I can get on with my day. And in terms of dog training, it just wasn't very productive, really. So that's where the idea came from, because I discovered that if I jotted down my training sessions before I went out, even in just a little notebook, um, what I was going to go and do, then I would have a much more productive session. And so that's where this grew out of, combined with the the Force Free Gun Dog Training book and helping you work through that in a structured way. So it's kind of a combination of those two things. So I really highly recommend that you check it out. It's on Amazon. I believe it's on Amazon UK and Amazon.com. And I think someone successfully purchased it from Amazon Canada as well. So you might just want to check it out um, on Amazon. So anyway, that is the workbook. Go check it out. Hold the line. So I've got a question from someone who wants to remain anonymous, which is fine. So I'll just read you out their email. They said, hi, Joe. Thanks for a great podcast. I enjoy listening to all your tips and your thoughts on gun dog training. I have a two and a half year old Labrador. He is very eager and gets stressed quickly. He gets noisy, whining a lot when he waits for other dogs to work, dummies to be thrown or shots to be fired. He has a hard time staying seated, calm, waiting and not running away when dummies are thrown unless I hold him back with a leash or I stand in front of him, not very force free. If we meet other people, cyclists or other dogs, it is impossible to get his attention. He has full focus on getting to run out to the other people and dogs. He is a very fast Labrador and is doing lining and marking fairly good. I've not trained him with a clicker before, but I've just started your online course, Heal. Is there anything that I can do to get more hold on him and to avoid him being noisy? Or is he too old to change the behavior? So that's a really excellent question. And there's a lot in there to unpack and to talk about. Now, I should say, first of all, that the email doesn't give us certain information, which it's pretty important to find out. So things like what 
previous learning history does this dog have? Did this dog attend dog training classes? Has this dog been around other dogs very much? What reinforcers are being used? So you meant, there's a mention of treats, but not what the treats actually are and how reinforcing they are. So there's some information that we don't know here. So we're going to have to kind of um, think around that and, um, you know, maybe incorporate some things that the person may already be trying. So the first thing to say is, it's important to take retrieving out of the equation because it sounds like if he's if he gets very excited meeting other people, cyclists, other dogs, this is not just about a work a work situation. This is not just about shooting. This is not just about retrieving and um, gun dog work. This is a general kind of over arousal situation, and it's important to work on that first um, and away from the gun dog scenario. The risk if you keep taking him into that situation when he's really excited is that the excitement and the over arousal will get associated repeatedly with that environment and with that setting and that context. And pretty soon, the environment itself will elicit that emotional response in him and it'll become very difficult to change this. So I would say, first of all, that you need to be thinking about just working on over arousal around people, other dogs and stuff in the world. So what I like to do with my young dogs is make sure that I am regularly, at least once a week, I try and do it twice a week, um, going out to urban environments with them and just hanging out. So watching people go by, watching dogs go by, watching traffic go by, cyclists go by. Um, and I try and just, you can either, you can start out what doing what I call occupying the spot, which just means hanging out on that spot. Um, not trying to walk anywhere, not trying to do heel work, just standing still and reinforcing attention. Every kind of time the dog looks at you, marking that with a clicker, giving the treat and making sure the treat is a high value treat and that the dog is keen to earn that treat. You can start to do some look at that with people walking by or cyclists or any of these moving, exciting things. By the way, all this material was covered on my most recent course, the Focus and Attention course, which is available on my website, forcefreegundog.com. So the person who wrote this email said they're doing the heel course, which is great. However, I think they probably need to work on focus and attention before they can work on heel, because it's a bit like puppy culture says that attention is the mother of all behaviors. And I really like that phrase because I think it... It really captures why attention is so important. It's underneath everything else that we need the dog to do, even when the dog's not giving us eye contact and it's not a sort of eye contact type of attention. There's a sort of connection between us and the dog and we need that to remain there all the time in order for us to be able to work with the dog. So that would be my recommendation is that you stop focusing on specific behaviors like heal or retrieve and that you just work on focus. I was going to say focus on focus, but that's a bit weird, but you know what I mean? Yeah. So work on focus. So yeah, statically go out to urban environments, hang out. And then once you can do that with you standing still, you can start to incorporate a little bit of heel work, but not with any sort of agenda to get anywhere. So I tend to find that when people have purposeful places to go, like often people will be like, I know I'll just go and get a coffee and I'll combine walking to the um, cafe or whatever with some hill work. And then it all can easily become really quite frustrating for both you and the dog because walking to the cafe, no matter how close the cafe is, turns out to be a much bigger quest than you thought it would be. So I usually suggest that people park 
somewhere as close as possible to where they're going to be doing this so they can park and then just immediately get out of the car and do this at first and then once you're pretty sure that you you're going to get focus from the dog in that environment you can start to do a bit of heel work but not with any purposeful place or destination that you want to get towards you're just milling around and if you if you feel like your dog is not focused enough for you to keep walking away from your car then don't just walk back to the car again and then walk away from the car again and back to the car again keep just working on that so i think that you need to get some more training skills under your belt in terms of all of what i call the sort of focus type exercises so i would define those as the up and down game the ping pong game some of these are from control unleashed look at that um automatic check-ins from the dog the go sniff exercise where the dog offers you focus in order to be released to the environment um just you know working with all of these focus exercises and having them really well known by the dog um and then even find it as well so all of these are covered on the focus and attention um, course that's available on my website so you might want to check that out um the other thing to say is i would avoid a training scenario with other dogs around until you've got all of that working you know around people cyclists and other dogs that are not actually working and the first thing i would then do when i took him into a, a group environment is i'd try to take him into a non-gun dog class so go and find a really good force-free general training class where you'll have other people and other dogs around you it's not going to not going to be people throwing retrieves and that level of excitement and shots fired and things but they're going to be people and other dogs around for you to be able to continue your focus work in that kind of environment and if you find that a dog's able to engage with you and not get too overexcited in that environment then is a time to move to the field and to try that you know the next level up and the final thing to say is make sure you're using really tasty treats. So often I have people say, oh, I'm using treats and they're using something like kibble or some sort of dry pet shop bought treat. And it's just not going to cut it for a lot of dogs. It's just not tasty enough. So you need to be using stuff like um, any sort of roast meat you can use. You can chop it up into little bits. Um, any sort of organ meat, kidneys, hearts, liver, boil it all, chop it up freeze it in little baggies defrost it as needed um cheddar um those are kind of my staples so make sure you are using tasty enough treats and those are not what i would count as being my tastiest treats the tastiest treats are the ones i save for recalls and they're the sort of squishy disgusting things like pate and sardines and smoked mackerel and that kind of thing um so that would be my suggestion so it's important not to put your dog in situations that they can't handle yet because otherwise you will make that association between the high high arousal levels and excitement and, you know, gun dog work. And you don't really want to make that. You want to gradually increase the level of excitement as you're able to keep the dog calm and focused on you. So I hope that that makes sense. Um, and let's move on because I've got another interesting question this week as well. Hold the line. So the question is from victoria and she says hi joe love your podcast haven't listened to all episodes yet because i recently discovered it i guess we can forgive you that victoria um but just ordered your book and other books due to your recommendations um she says i have a three-month-old english pointer puppy at the moment my first hbr and although all the training that needs to be done to get an obedient gun dog can seem overwhelming i feel i have somewhat control of that part what I do not know much about is the development of the dog's abilities to hunt, how to use the wind and terrain to their advantage, etc., etc. How much time should we spend in the field or mountains, for our sake, with the puppy? And how should we train that? I feel that these hunting dogs have so much already programmed in their DNA, but how do we get them to use it correctly? 
Okay, folks, it's time for a whistle pause. A whistle pause is when there would usually be an advert from a sponsor. But I don't have a sponsor, so instead I'm going to play you a tune on my trusty Acme 212. Now, the tune there is slightly hampered by the fact that the 212 is just one pitch, but I hope you can appreciate the rhythm. Now, the reason that we've got this beautiful whistle pause instead of an advert is because I don't get any funding for this podcast or sponsorship. I record it, edit it, upload it myself, and I pay for the server. I don't want to get a sponsor because then I have to promote whatever business is sponsoring me. And apart from the fact that I think that most dog products are bollocks, I would lose some of the independence and the freedom that I have at the moment to say whatever I want to say about whatever I want to say it about. But if you want to support me, and if you like this podcast, then there are some ways that you can support me, which will also benefit you, I hope. So you can check out the online courses I make, which you can find at forcefreegundog.com. And you can also check out my book, Force Free Gundog Training, and the accompanying workbook for it, which is a planner called The Workbook. You can get both of these from Amazon wherever you live in the world. So I really hope you can support me and check out some of this material. Anyway, that is the end of today's whistle pause. Let's get back to the show. So... That is a very good question as well. In fact, that's a really excellent question. Yeah, I mean, the main thing, I think, is to separate out the the dog having an opportunity to run and exercise and to uh, practice quartering into the wind and all that sort of thing and making sure that you control their experiences around game. So what tends to happen and can lead to problems is that you're out with your young dog and you haven't introduced them to game yet and they've got no idea what it is or you know anything and you put up a rabbit or you put up something really exciting which the dog chases and finds amazing and that can happen once maybe twice and then your puppy is sort of wow i really need to go find some more of these i need to chase some more of these and this becomes the sort of be all and end all of being out And it can be very difficult from that point on to teach your puppy that you are a person that is relevant to all of this, that that their access to all of this happens through you and that you are part of the hunting thing um, rather than them just sort of being AWOL and doing this all by themselves. So for that reason, I think it's really important that the puppy's first experiences with game are controlled and the way to do that is different options for that. I like the whole bird launcher um approach so using bird launchers remote bird launchers where you have the remote and you can trigger the flush of the bird using the remote so you can then plant them out there in the field and you know where they are and you know which direction the wind is coming from so you know when the puppy's going to hit the scent cone you know you know when the puppy might be expected to start to point and if the puppy doesn't point when you're going to pop that uh, bird launcher so the the puppy will lose the bird if they keep moving in keep moving in the bird will f- flush well they'll flush because we've flushed it as it were with our remote um, control thing um, so that way you can control everything and you can teach the puppy to hold that point in order to not lose the bird and you can get them steady on point so that's like a really important um, step and when the bird is flushed you've also got an opportunity to start to work on the steadiness so on the pup not chasing the bird and seeing that as a cue to sit instead of chase. 
So there's a lot of work you can do before that involving flirt poles and tuggies and things. That's what I tend to do. And also just getting the pup used to the idea that when there's something that you want, you go into a sit. And and even if the thing is moving away from you and it's sort of um, making you want to chase it, in order to get it, you, you, you shouldn't chase it, you should sit. And that's the fastest way to get it. And there's lots of different things that you can do with toys and tugs to try and communicate that to the pup before you move on to all this bird work. So the pup's got all of that beforehand and it, it's not then a big quest to teach them the same concept um, with the bird launcher. So... So then you're doing this for quite a while, this sort of controlled hunting up of game. And then as as you see that the pup is becoming more and more reliable, then you can start to work on wild game. And wild game is going to teach the pup a whole new load of things um, besides that. So separate to that and before all of that, you can be working on quartering with the puppy and, you know, walking into the wind so so the pup, the wind's coming into your face and you're walking kind of across the wind from one side to the other but it's coming in it's, your puppy is running across it and so they're getting all the wind in their face of, of what's ahead and you know as the pup overtakes you and gets in front of you you're going to slip away in the other direction so you're encouraging the pup to quarter but you want to make sure there is not any game in that area or you know you know that it's a field that rarely holds game and that it's very unlikely there's going to be anything there and so on and so forth so that you're not going to be surprised with you know your pup's first experience of game being something that you're not aware of and not ready for so that's basically what i would say and then it's only once you've got it working well with the bird launchers that i would you know start to um hunt the pup for real and wild game I would probably also at this point make sure that I'd visited a rabbit pen as well because that's going to give us an opportunity to consolidate that idea of something runs and you don't try and get it. So the kind of the thing that you want is the game because there's nothing that replaces game at this point of training and you want to make sure that it's happening under your control. So, you know, in a rabbit pen, we know we're in a rabbit pen. So we're going to put a lead on the dog or a long line on the dog. We're going to prevent the dog from being able to access whatever it is. We are going to, if we're using um, birds in the bird launcher again, we're going to be watching the dog. We're going to know when to release that launcher if the dog gets too close to the launcher or doesn't point or, you know, we can trigger that and we can use that as a sort of, um, you know, you lose the bird kind of thing and as a way of teaching that puppy what we want to happen around birds. So... The secret is to be working with game, but game which is under your control. Now, there are other ways that you can control game. You can dizzy some birds and you, you pop their head under their wing and you gently rock them and they'll go to sleep and then you can place them down on the floor and then they will wake up when the dog comes up to them. However, sometimes they're a bit slow to wake up and they can get pegged like that. So I tend to prefer the bird launcher because, you know, you can just release the bird and make sure that doesn't happen. Um, you can also get manual release kind of cages where there's like a string or something that you can pull to release the bird. Um, it's all, that's a little, you know, you've got to make sure you're holding the string and that you've got everything in sort of the right way. Whereas I just find it's easier if you're holding the remote. It doesn't matter where you are around the launcher, you can press that button. So I think these are the, these are the best um, the best option, the bird launchers. But the secret and the kind of underlying principle of it all is that there's game, but you can control it and you can use it in training because you can control it. So that is the, that's the most important thing. So, but you probably don't want to be doing this with your 12 week old puppy. It's all a little, you know, it's, it's further ahead for you. What you're going to have to think about is 
training your pup, getting focus on you out and about. And you can do some of that quartering stuff I was talking about as long as you know there's no game in that area so that you kind of teach the pup to run. And then when you think the pup's ready, you can introduce them to game. So that was what I would say really on that one. Now, I would also just add that it's a little bit different to do things that way that for people, particularly in North America, because in North America, the the sort of normal approach is to introduce young dogs to game very early and to give them lots and lots of birds and almost to let them do whatever they want to do so they get you know they they the bird flies and they get to chase the bird and the dog's not expected to be what they call broke um until it's a little bit older and so i kind of find this is really a problematic approach because the dog is learning a response which we don't want so if you think about the bird flushing as a cue we want the bird flushing to be a cue to do a behavior. And that behavior might just be standing there if, you want, if you're in North America, or it might be sitting or whatever, but it's probably not chasing the bird. So unless you want the bird flushing to cue a chase, it's not great learning in terms of learning theory to allow a bird flushing to cue a chase over and over and over again. It's kind of assuming and working on the assumption that extinction is going to occur. And, you know, sometimes extinction does occur and the dog is like, okay, this is boring now. I never get to chase the bird. I'm not going to chase it anymore. But a lot of time chasing doesn't extinguish and dogs are like, wow, this is great. I love chasing this for as long as I can chase it. Um, And that can lead to problems. So it's kind of assuming it's it's taking a bit of a risk, I think, in terms of what we're assuming. So I, I prefer to think about it as like the bird is cueing things if the bird is there it's hidden but the dog can smell the bird and that's cueing a pointing behavior if you've got a pointing breed or a flushing behavior if you've got a spaniel and if the dog sees the bird flush up in the air or if it's ground game sees the game run then that is cueing a sit or a stand if you're in north america so i always try to think about it as as a cue and we're trying to get the right behavior after happening after that cue So for that reason, it becomes a little bit messy to allow a dog to repeatedly do the opposite of what we want that cue to come to mean in the future, if that makes sense. So to allow a dog to repeatedly chase when we want the cue, the the game flushing to cue a sit or a stand. So I hope that makes some kind of sense. Um, And the other thing to say about it is that often in North America, the dog is going to be stopped from being able to chase with an e-collar so it's going to be a very abrupt you know i think the word broke the dog is a broke dog is is a good choice of word there so it's going to be a very abrupt stopping of this behavior and if we're training using force free methods we don't have this available as an option we don't have a way of um, sticking an e-collar on the dog and stopping the dog from being able to do this thing that we've allowed them to do repeatedly so I think we need to think about things in a very different way and approach things differently and I do think the whole sort of UK approach or European approach of teaching the dog to respond to us first of all to respond to our cues first of all and then a very careful introduction to game where the game is seen to be under your control and part of the training process so we don't want the dog to think that you know, the game is out there in the environment and it's nothing to do with us because that's just going to lead to an AWOL dog. We want the dog to think, hey, that thing out there is a reinforcer, which my owner has put out there for me to go and find. So, you know, it's a little bit like you can imagine like it's a food bowl. So you might have seen these exercises where dogs are doing obedience and there's like a food bowl on the floor with some food in it. And the dog does some heel work and then or something. And then the handler gives the dog a cue like cookies, it's my cue, um, to tell the dog to go and eat the treat out of the bowl. 
So the dog is able to do all of this behavior and respond to the handler because they're then going to be given a cue to be told they can go and access that reinforcer, which is off the handler's person. It's it's out there in the environment. So I know that that, that treat in the bowl is not a bird, but it is a reinforcer, which is off the handler's person. And the dog has come to understand that that is part of the training process. That treat is part is is connected to what they're doing with the handler right now and res- their responsiveness to the handler is earning them that reinforcer and that's what we need to communicate to the dog when we introduce the dog to the game particularly the first uh, you know at first we need the dog to realize that the handler is part of this and responding to the handler is what is going to earn access to that reinforcer which is the bird so i hope that makes sense if you did want to take a deeper dive into the subject i'm going to be doing a webinar on the 11th of February with the Fenzi Academy online. And we're going to be covering some of this early training with puppies using Renmai GSP pup. And we're going to be covering with, with tuggies and with flirt poles how to get some of these behaviors started. So the things like um, the pointing behavior, don't try and get it, but hold a point. It's not, obviously not a true point because it's on a tuggy, it's not on game. It's a sight point, but we're going to cover that and the sort of questions people have about that on the webinar. There's going to be a flush, so we're going to teach the dog to get in when they hear our get in cue. And then we're going to be working on steadiness in terms of the game, um, either going up in the air or going along the ground in a tempting way to actually cue the dog to go into a sit instead of chasing it. So we're going to be covering how to do that using tugs. And with the idea that if you can do this with a tug toy, which the dog really wants, then it's just going to be about moving this across the game and teaching the dog when you come onto the rabbit pen and when you come onto the um, bird launchers that it's all the same stuff. It just applies. All the same stuff they've been doing before applies again in these new contexts. So anyway, if you want to catch up on that, it's going to be on the 11th of February and it's with the Fenzi Academy. And the website for the Fenzi Academy is fenzydogsportsacademy.com and then you need to check on, click on the webinars link on the top menu there now it's not available for sale just yet as i'm speaking but it will be available very soon um so just keep checking out the website um yeah so do check that out for some more detailed information on the whole sort of hunting and pointing and steadiness sequence and and introducing some of those concepts to a young puppy you might find that useful hold the line that's all for this week folks have a good one and stay safe Ding <laughs> <laughs>